I wanted to give a different type of Dharma talk um, today. And so if you feel like I'm going too quickly or um, that you've lost w the train of what I'm saying, please stop me and I can, um, and I can retract. Because even though sometimes it's a little complicated to understand the framework of what we're doing, I found it really helpful. And it isn't actually necessary to understand all parts of it because at different points we come into connection with different aspects of it and it kind of is um, um, like drinking Alka-Seltzer. You know you drink it and then you get this sort of fuzzy thing in your stomach. <laughs> it's understanding the philosophical framework of the Dharma is sort of like that. You hear it and then at some point sometimes there's this little fuzzy light. Oh, I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> The first morning, I talked about what's wholesome and what isn't wholesome. And the Buddha said that these teachings can be brought to one single phrase, although you've probably heard us say this many times and use different phrases, and that's probably fair too, but not that many different phrases. One of them is, these teachings are about suffering and the reduction of suffering. That's all. That, that all this is about acknowledging suffering and the reduction of it. We could turn that a little bit and say that these teachings are about cultivating what's skillful and letting go of what isn't skillful. in a way, incredibly simple, incredibly simple. This complex phenomena of mind-body that we call us is an invitation over and over and over again to see what's happening, and we keep talking about that, to see what's happening. And in that process, to notice whether that happening is skillful or unskillful, whether it is reducing our suffering or whether it's increasing it. And that's it. Because the deepest acknowledgement, and Eric talked about it so beautifully yesterday evening, is the acknowledgement of the pain and unsatisfactoriness of our lives. And that without the Dharma, it becomes a hell realm. And it's probably true to say that each one of us here has lived in that hell realm in one way or another. We've lived in hell realms. We know it. Our liberation depends on coming to see clearly what builds, what actually brings about that hell realm. What are the conditions that bring about the hell realm? And what are the conditions that reduce it? What are the conditions when we notice we're happy that brought the happiness? And what are the conditions that take us away from happiness? <coughs> so the 
the it was said when the Buddha reached enlightenment that he saw everything that there is to be known in this universe, that he saw everything. He, he actually was able through his mind, put this on again, he was actually able through his mind to see atomic particles and to distinguish them. Thousands of years before, scientists actually said, oh, they're atoms that make up matter. He saw it with his eye. He could, he could actually see tons of stuff. <laughs> but he said, but really, it's just important to know some things out of that mass of possible knowledge. And this is what he said. <clears throat> the only way that leads to the attainment of purity to the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, to the end of pain and grief, to the entering upon the right path and the realization of nirvana is by the four foundations of mindfulness. And which are these four? Herein the disciple dwells in contemplation of the body, in contemplation of feeling, in contemplation of the mind, in contemplation of mind objects, ardent, that's great effort, clearly comprehending them, and mindful after putting away worldly greed, greed and grief. So the Buddha got really specific. specific. He said, if we want to put away lamentation and grief, Here's what we can do. He said, let me divide our experience into four fields to make it more understandable. The field of body, the field of the sensation of pleasant and unpleasant, the field of what he calls mental factors that we call emotions, and the field of what he calls mental objects and we call the thinking process. So think, is there anything outside of that? Is there any experience outside of that? Included in the body are the senses. So he said, if we're mindful of our experience and he divides them up in that way, we are certain to come to liberation. And then he said, here are some ways that you can begin to be mindful of these different bases. We're doing a popular way, which is mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of movement. There actually are some other ways too. One of the, one of the ways that's actually much stronger in some of the other traditions is to contemplate the deep understanding that lies in ourselves, but we, which we often don't have access to, that we're going to die. He gave a specific meditation on asking each of us to think through the stages of dying. Perhaps what would happen if we were sick and finally started to feel our energy dwindling to feel 
the, the loss of consciousness, to contemplate our body decaying and disintegrating, to contemplate it either being burnt or being put in the earth, to contemplate the end result of that, which is the ashes, either from the disintegration, and he gets very specific over the stages of the bones that disintegrate into dust, or the ashes from burning. It's a beautiful contemplation, and he asked us to contemplate this because we have such an attachment to our body, because we're so caught in thinking that this body is our body. So let's take a moment <coughs> and just connect with our experience of the breath and its coming and going, with the experience of different sensations and coming and going. See if you can connect for a moment in that coming and going with the whole body coming and going, part of the universal process of our body coming into life independently of any I and dying independently of I in the same way that a sensation arises and passes, so our body arises and passes. In that process of allowing this body to be a body that is not owned by anyone, can you sense the spaciousness that arises and even perhaps the self-love that arises in that relationship of freedom? As soon as we let go of controlling or owning the body, there comes a deep love and honoring and respect for our body. Mostly, we impose ideas onto our body of what's attractive, of what's strong, of what's okay. And we try and, what can I say? We squish that feeling of being in, uh, in our bodies into that idea of how we think our body should look. It's the deepest suffering, isn't it? I, I am amazed at how many times I've looked in the mirror and before I can catch it comes some kind of judgment, as though I had control over my body. You know, because if I did, I would rearrange it, let me tell you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I remember a very um, profound experience for me. It was um, in Berkeley many years ago, and we were doing an all-night equinox circle. And we were passing a rattle around and singing. It, it was taking the, the form of the peyote circle without the peyote. And we were rattling and there was a drum and this rattle was going around and around the circle and um, it was getting to be dawn and um, we were sitting without any clothes on because uh, 
it was very hot in this room. And, um, and I remember passing the rattle to the woman next to me and looking at her for the first time in this moment and really looking at her body without any of the social preconceptions that usually are there before I have the direct experience, you know. And I saw her as so beautiful. And it wasn't, her body wasn't classically beautiful, you know. But I just thought as a body and life and how beautiful it was. And it was very profound to have the experience of seeing how much my direct relationship to my own body and other people's bodies is distorted and cut off from the direct experience, which is so beautiful. There is a story of um, uh, one of the main donors of the Buddha during his time. She was a very, very, very beautiful Indian princess and spent a lot of time coiling her hair while she had servants to do it and dressing out in silks and so on. And she was so into her looks because she was so beautiful and quite renowned that when she heard about the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings, she wasn't interested. And her husband was actually interested and went to hear the Buddha's teachings. And he felt very touched by the Buddha's teachings and actually took refuge in the teachings. And he kept trying to persuade his wife to go and check out this guy. And, um, and so finally she, she said, oh, okay, I will. And she um, went to see the Buddha. And the Buddha saw her mind and saw that actually she had a lot of wholesome qualities, a lot of faith and generosity and loving kindness, but also saw her attachment. And so he said, just look at me. And he, he produced this replica of her because he had all these incredible psychic powers, right next to him, just as her. And then slowly that replica started to get old and got wrinkled and her hair got gray and fizzy like it does when it's gray, you know, and her mouth started to slobber a little bit and it went down on one side and her breath sunk and, you know, all the things, you, you know, the muscle falls away from the bone and she looked, you know, like a very old woman. And in seeing herself grow old in that way and realizing that she actually had nothing to hold on to, she realized the first stage of enlightenment and became the primary donor for the Buddha. In these traditions, there's a lot of teachings about actually looking at our body with disgust. That's the word the Buddha uses. And I think for, for some people, that's um, the right approach. For a lot of it, really, the, the process of freedom feels more like coming to honor our body as it is, you know, coming to love our body, coming to really respect our body as our bodies are and to see our bodies as the vehicle for our freedom and liberation, as, as life independently 
of our own thinking process in the sense of not being owned by us. It's a tremendously beautiful way to come into connection with ourselves. It's a tremendously beautiful way to come to respect ourselves and honor ourselves is to come into right relationship with our body. That is, coming to see that it is a living expression independently of an eye. The next field of, in, of mindfulness is one of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And this, this is what happens. <laughs> um, when you say, well, okay, there's no I. I hear these teachings say I. I hear Eric saying it. I hear all these people saying it. But like, what's really going on? Why do I feel like there's an I? This is what's going on. In every split, split second, and shorter than a second, there are these 14 factors that arise in one moment of consciousness. I'll explain them in a minute. Contact, feeling, perception, volition, one-pointedness, life faculty, and attention. They are always there. Every moment you're alive, those mental factors are present in your consciousness. Then there are these six occasionals, initial application, sustained application, decision, energy, zest, and desire. And then there are either wholesome or unwholesome factors. So when, I mean, this is an aside, when you think, oh, I'm depressed, forget it. You're not depressed. You are experiencing contact, feeling, perception, volition, one-pointedness, life faculty, attention, and a lot of other things. <laughs> Contact. Every mind moment, there is contact. There is an object connecting with one of your senses. Eyes, ears, thought. A, a thought is contacting with your mind space. What else? Nose. Touch. Tongue. Tongue. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite sense spaces. <laughs> Every moment we are alive, there is contact with one of those sense spaces. It is the nature of your sense space, no I, of one of your sense spaces to live in relationship to an outside object. That is to say, I sees, unless you're blind, I sees. That is the nature of seeing. And that object and the consciousness of seeing arise automatically. Or when you're eating, there's tasting, the consciousness of tasting and the food there. There's no I there, actually. There's just the function of your sense spaces. Get it? It's just the function of I, of your I, coming into contact with an object. Contact. No I, just contact. Then there is feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Every mini, every mini second with that contact, there is pleasant, 
unpleasant or neutral. With pleasant comes liking, with unpleasant comes not liking. With liking, unless there's mindfulness, comes grasping. With not liking comes aversion. That's part of the sequence. So the Buddha is saying, check out the sequence. Check out the feeling of liking and not liking. So when we're experiencing our breath, right? And isn't it true in each millisecond, there's a sense of pleasant, unpleasant? And then the mind either moving towards it or away from it. I like this, I don't like it. And then usually the sequence, if you don't like it, of I don't know what I'm doing here. Oh, this is just driving me nuts. I can't wait to get out, you know? Or <laughs> liking it. Why doesn't Arena shut up? You know, this is such a pleasant sensation. I don't want to be distracted. Whatever. So actually, we, what we call our personalities, are constructed very much around this dynamic. It's fascinating. So when you say, is there an I? There's contact, there's pleasant, unpleasant, and then often aversion or grasping and the thought construction around it. There's no I in aversion. Aversion averses itself. Hating hates. So hating comes up when there's something unpleasant, for example. Or grasping comes up. Grasping grasps. It's not that you're grasping. It's that pleasant is the condition for grasping. It's like put a kettle on a stove and it'll turn to steam. Without mindfulness, pleasant gives rise to grasping. Not you're bad, oh, I'm so lousy, I'm grasping. No, pleasant gives rise to grasping. Grasping often needs some strategies for obtaining the goal, mental construction, all the ideas. I heard there's a cappuccino place down the corner. Where, do you know what I mean? Where can I? It's fascinating. <laughs> so, after this Dharma talk, check out the feeling of pleasant and unpleasant as you connect with your breath or as you connect with the walking or the tasting or the feel of something against your skin, maybe the coolness of air or the warmth of the sun, and just notice pleasant or unpleasant. So, so then there is mental factors, the next foundation. So here's another list. Just <laughs> with the, with the um, pleasant and unpleasant, there's also a whole array of other possible feelings that hopefully um, we're cultivating and strengthening. Here are some of the optional here are some of the optional feelings that can arise. There are fourteen unwholesome energies that we're supported to let go of. 
and there are 25 what are called beautiful factors. I'm not going to read all of the 25 beautiful factors because some of them um, are a little more subtle. But the 14 unwholesome factors I can read because we all know them. <laughs> Delusion, which is mental blindness, the unknowing of the dangers of what brings us suffering. It's a non-penetration. So remember, we were saying that mindfulness is non-superficiality. Delusion is the opposite. It's a non-penetration and concealment of the object. That's fascinating. A concealment of the object. And it causes unwise attention. There's shamelessness, which is no sense of um, the consequences of doing something wrong and something very close to it, which is not being scared of doing something wrong, wrong in the sense of creating suffering. And then there's restlessness. Now, delusion, shamelessness, fearlessness, and restlessness are in every moment when you're experiencing suffering. Every mind moment when you are experiencing suffering, you're experiencing all those factors, plus these other 10, greed, wrong view, conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, and doubt. The beautiful factors, faith, mindfulness, shame in the sense of knowing what's right and wrong, fear of wrong, non-greed or generosity, non-hatred or loving-kindness, equanimity, tranquility, lightness of body and consciousness, and some other more subtle ones I won't get into, right speech, right action, right livelihood, compassion, appreciative joy, and wisdom. So when we talk about cultivating wholesomeness and reducing our suffering, it is, it's a very intentional practice. We are intentionally bringing into being the wholesome factors of generosity or non-greed, of, of faith, of mindfulness, of um, loving-kindness, of compassion, of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And we're intentionally, when we see it, letting go of envy, avarice, delusion, and hatred. Why mindfulness is so beautiful, why it's the key, and why we're slogging away at it, is because mindfulness has the capacity to see what's wholesome and what isn't. When there's mindfulness, you can begin to see a thought and immediately see whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, and let go of it if it's unwholesome. And that is the most beautiful safeguard. It's, the, it's the, the most beautiful relationship to have. It's such a sense of security. It's such a sense of protection and refuge because you know that you're looking after yourself. You know you're taking care of yourself. When we say, may I honor and respect myself, when we have that as an intention, mindfulness helps us do it. It says, hey, it's what Eric was saying yesterday. I felt the anger, I let myself feel it, and then I saw how vitriolic it was. 
That's so beautiful because when we see it, we can let it go. Coming aligned with that sense of knowing what's healing is to finally empower ourselves. And the Buddha said, empower yourself by knowing these qualities of mind and how they arise for you. See whether they are wholesome for you. See whether they are unwholesome. Finally, there's the field of the thinking process. And this is uh, one of the places probably where we get most identified and most caught up is the thinking of based on mostly delusion. Thoughts think themselves. There is no one thinking. Practicing mindfulness to this field is coming to see that like wind moving air, it's the same thing, wind is moving air, or water is wet, or the characteristic of fire is hot and burning, thoughts think. Thoughts think themselves. And what the Buddha says is that many of our thoughts thinking themselves are thoughts that have been conditioned, that arise because of certain conditions and experiences and do not truly reflect what's wise. And we know that from hanging out with our thoughts, right? Those tapes that go on and on and on. And that are so seductive. They are so seductive. They pull us right in over and over again into believing them. And the Buddha said one of the most beautiful ways to free ourselves is to cultivate mindfulness or a knowing to the thinking process and to start to see that our thinking process is not about I, but our thoughts that are mostly conditioned and have nothing to do with our happiness and supporting our happiness. Check out your thinking process and see if your thinking process supports your happiness. He said, but you can intentionally cultivate thoughts that support your happiness. Reading the Dharma, thinking about it, thinking about the Four Noble Truths, thinking and cultivating intentionally the seven factors of enlightenment, understanding the five aggregates. These are all lists which um, we'll go into next retreat. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, really contemplating your experience as you directly experience it. Take time to think about what your experience is and what really supports your happiness. That's really what all those lists are about. Consciously cultivate a type of thinking that supports your happiness. 
and the practice of loving-kindness is consciously cultivating contemplation of loving-kindness. And it's a totally beautiful practice. It's a profound practice. Thinking in right relationship to ourselves is deeply liberating and freeing. It's a wonderful field to practice right intention and mindfulness. I just want to say that um, whenever we start a sentence with that heavy I, 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 you know, you can bet your life that you are caught in the delusion, that you are caught in the middle of whatever next you're going to say, and that that is constitutive of suffering. One of the most wonderful things in my life is my relationship with my partner because, you know, partners challenge you more than anyone else in the world, or children. Children probably challenge you the most, then parents and then partners. But maybe not always that way around. Maybe it just changes according to the situation. And it's really beautiful. One of the things that one of the things that I've been challenged around that I haven't even been aware that I've been identifying with has been something to do with my with uh, my class background and my um, and I think partly also to do with being Jewish. That sometimes there's a particular arrogance in the way I talk. You know, like I know what's best. This is the way it is. Especially when I'm having an argument with someone. No. No, that's not it, you know? And it's been a really wonderful process to be challenged around that and to start to see I'm owning something. I'm owning this totally makeup fabricated idea that I own this thought and this definition of the world, you know? It is just so hysterical and it is so freeing because when. I manage, not all the time, but sometimes to let go. I'm really able to hear other people and I'm really able to experience this world outside, often my very boring thoughts, you know, because I know my thoughts over and over again. It's not like I think that many original thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) It's really wonderful to challenge ourselves around that sense of ownership in the thought processes that we have. There's um, um, this poem I wanted to read because it feels to me that the more we understand there is no I, the more there is emptiness or the space that comes when we let go of that grasping and holding, the more there is love, the more there is a deep sense of connection to all of life everywhere. And the, the more we grasp on to ourselves and our experience, the greater the isolation, the greater the loneliness, and the greater the disconnection.
It's by this um, dyke called Elsa Gidlow. In the blaze of love it is known we are particles, each of each. We are cells of the mother of all. We cannot be cast off from sister cells. Her breath is the breath of our lungs, her heartbeat times our own. Where she is winged, we fly. We swim with her dolphins, wind through rocks with her jeweled snakes. We bloom in her million flowers. We grow in her ancient trees and die in a night with her moths. In rock, we wait with her, dreaming of fin or flesh, of the awful miracle of human heart and mind. In the blaze of love it is known, no being, no life is born, exists or dies alone. I pray through the practice of mindfulness to the four foundations of mindfulness that we come to live our life in the blaze of love, where we know that we exist with all life everywhere and die with all life everywhere. In this way, we come to what the Buddha calls the eternal and the unconditioned. May each one of us here be free. <laughs>